Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Happy belated birthday, friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was last week. It's been it's almost a week tomorrow. I haven't since, seen you. Since we turned 43. We have the, <laughs> Stephen, we have the same birthday. It's very weird. We, oh, is that right? We don't have the same parents. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. We don't have the same parents. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, what did you get up to? Just family stuff. I might be doing something this weekend, but nice. we'll see. Nothing too great. I think after like, after 40, I just sort of start forgetting about them now. Yeah, yeah. It's just best to forget that ever <laughs> yeah, happened. Exactly. And uh, how's business consulting yeah, and good. life? Busy, busy consulting, busy doing Patreon content. So excellent. I don't know. I just seem to be talking about business all the time. Well, that's, that's kind of what you do, right? It's good. Yeah, I guess it is what I do. Excellent. So I'm excited for today's chat though, because, well, you know how I feel about collagen and skin tightening and you if know, there was I'm a the king man. of collagen, you should know about this stuff. Exactly. But today we have an expert, Dr. Stephen Lowe from Sydney. Stephen, how are you today? I am very good. Thank you for thank you for having me on here. It's exciting. It's our absolute pleasure. Now we're excited about this one. One, because David likes collagen, but two, <laughs> we've never actually tackled this topic before, which is let's call it microfocused ultrasound, but better known as old therapy. And um, I guess we haven't tackled it one because we didn't know an expert, but now we do. So we're we're excited to uh, hear what you have to say. But also, there's lots of devices, yeah. lots of seemingly pseudoscience and lots of, I guess, anecdotal varying feedback from patients who I've, you know, spoken to in person. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you walk into a conference or, and you're just seeing stalls of device companies all talking Selling about, you a dream. Selling you a dream. And as you said, the results are sometimes mixed. Patient selection is important. Some people say they work. Some people say they don't. And so here we are. Here, yeah. Here we are. Stephen, where is your accent from? Because I heard it and I got very confused. It sounds like it's Welsh, maybe Scottish, maybe where? I'm going to say Ireland. Ireland is Irish. I'm going to let you keep guessing. No, I'm I, I'm Scottish. I was born in <laughs> I was born in Perth on the east coast of Scotland. Um, I grew up further north, up up in the hills of Scotland, up in the in the Highlands. Right. And I moved here. 15, 16 years ago. Right. But my accent remains. Yeah. My family's from Aberdeen, so I don't know how far that is from Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They're not too far from that. Might be related. There you go. It's a, it's a very <laughs> soft Scottish accent. It's nice. I mean, all Scottish accents are nice, but it's, it's softer. Is that is that traditional from the area? Yeah. The further north, they have a, uh, they do have a softer accent. It's, yeah. And it's, um, it's a little bit more, it's not Irish, but it's kind of a softer, like Irish rather there than... There you go. I knew there was some Irish Scotland something. <laughs> have that harder Glenn accent, which is hard to understand. Yeah, I, I found um, it gets broader with every drink. 
Yes, <laughs> and faster, broader and faster. Fair. Uh, anyway, back to um, old therapy. Yes, back to old therapy. And we should say, today's episode, we're partnering with Mertz Aesthetics, so they've kindly provided our expert, and uh, we had a look at some of the publications and obviously some of the data from the device as well. But Stephen, why don't you introduce yourself? You've told us a little bit about where you're from, but tell us about your aesthetic background, your training, and I guess, you know, what do you do now? I know where you work, but tell, tell our listeners who have never met you mm. before. So I have been, I've been a doctor for over 20 years. I studied in the UK, moved here uh, 15 years ago. Uh, my training was in uh, Dundee University in Scotland. I, I have postgraduate uh, fellowships in general practice and in aesthetic medicine. I'm a fellow of colleges of aesthetic medicine and general practice. I like academia, so I have master's degrees in public health and in aesthetic medicine. Um, I, I really focus all my time. I was trying to think, I was, I was thinking you might ask how long have I been doing this? And I, I had to go back and look at when I did that first, that, that classic course that we probably <laughs> all did, where we just did that one day, tops in the morning, filler in the afternoon. And, and that was 13 years ago. So I've been kind of doing this for a little bit of time. And then I, I committed full time to cosmetics about seven years ago. I, I yeah. gave up general practice. The, the weekend expert degree. Can I, can I ask, where did you learn the dark <laughs> yeah. arts? Who did the one-day course uh, with you? So it was um, it was in Sydney. It was in the city. It was that um, a, yeah that kind of classic uh, Allegan training morning session with uh, with one product and then the afternoon with with filler. Um, but I mean, it, you know, it served a great purpose. It, it got me, gave me a taste of just what this world was all about yeah. and. Um, you know, it's just that stepping stone into into further training. Yeah. So, I mean, I have no regrets about the path. Yeah, and I and I guess as well, what we know today is infinitely more than what we knew 13 years ago. So, in terms of the complexity, yeah. you know, the complications, things like uh, occlusions weren't really spoken about back then. We didn't have the the plethora of treatments and cannulas, and so I think it's sort of evolved. And so, the training probably is evolving, and hopefully, will continue to evolve over time. Look, we, we've all done the same thing, and yet here we are relatively successful yeah. so it, it kind of works but i think we've we've learned our lessons and there's certainly better ways of learning now but um anyway moving on um let's maybe restart this conversation by maybe revisiting facial aging first because you know the old therapy device as you're going to tell us it's about collagen stimulation yep. and maybe even tightening and lifting of the of the tissues but what are we trying to treat? So maybe just recap for our listeners who potentially are newer on their journey or newer to the podcast. What I guess do we mean by facial aging when it comes to what our therapy might, you know, treat? I mean, some of this will be familiar to um, to your listeners, as you said, but we we have to think about aging on that that multi layer concept. This this idea that I think we used to have, where we just looked at the surface and then decided you know what people needed just based on what we could externally see i think that that's evolved i think as our anatomy has improved as our as our understanding of what actually aging is we really have to think about aging being multiple layer uh, we have to think about what we see on the surface with the skin and with the dermis but these layers underneath are doing an awful lot and contributing an awful lot more to what we're seeing on the surface so obviously changes in fat pads we know that the superficial and the deep fat compartments vary in different ways with the aging process but we know that collagen rich structures so ligaments tendons 
this virus uh, fascia kind of system that runs through our face, but full of collagen. And we know that with aging and with cellular senescence and things slowing down, that the collagen in these structures is affected as well. And that that's really this kind of scaffold system that's running through the face from right down on the bone, which of course we know there's bone changes happening in the aging process as well. So there's this multiple layers of of impact from bone, from fat, from this fascia network, from the muscles themselves, and of course what we see on the surface, the dermis. So I think all therapy, when we come to talk about it more, I mean, I think all therapy is thinking about that that multi-layer scaffold system. And I think if you're not thinking about the face in these three dimensions, I think we're probably not hitting the spot with our treatments. Yeah. And so as, as someone that offers a modality of treatments, in terms of like making a clinical decision as to which way you're going to proceed, with all the tools you have in your armory, where, where does sort of old therapy fit into the decision-making process? You know, is it patient selection, you know, patient-specific? Is it sort of age-specific or is it a bit more complicated than that? I think it's for people who are um, who are really wanting to kind of tackle this aging process longer term. I mean, it's not, it's not a quick-fix treatment. It's not a treatment that you're going to get instant improvement and satisfaction from after a few days like you would with toxin or filler this is i think it's for people who are committed to to really tackling this aging process longer term and they're thinking they're thinking bigger than just quick fix today they're really kind of willing to invest in doing things that will improve the structure and the integrity of the the multiple layers of the face and really start to really start to tackle what's going on globally with the face rather than just kind of zoning in on one area. I think we do, as you mentioned, I think we do have to be careful about uh, patient selection and about when we introduce it to people. But I think I think it's for people who are who are moving on from just quick fix, short term solution. They're thinking longer term. Mm. Talking about investing in your face, I've met you, Stephen, and you just said you've been a doctor for 20 years <laughs> and yet you look yeah. I mean, amazing! Genuinely, you could be in your teens. Like seriously. So, <laughs> have you done all therapy yourself? And and if not, what what else are you doing? And maybe we'll get a video of you for our for our YouTube uh, yeah. at one at one point where people can see you as well. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I have most certainly had all therapy. I I have at least one a year. Sometimes, if I'm feeling greedy, I'll have two a year. <laughs> um, I I look after my skin. I'm I'm a little bit skin focused. Our our whole clinic setup is very skin focused. I I like my lasers and I like skin treatments. And I, I mean, I really am I'm really about confident stuff as much as possible. We as a clinic we offer you know tightening and lifting treatments like therapy, but I'm I'm very focused on skin. So I use an excessive amount of skincare at home in my bathroom cupboards. I I have lasers. I definitely have all therapy. I don't. I'm not. I don't overdo anything. Or I try not to. Like I don't. Um, I don't have an awful lot of toxin filler. They, I have in the past, but that's not my my main focus. Is really trying to keep things lifted and the skin quality better. To be honest. Yeah, I think it's where we're all going. To yeah. be completely honest, but um, especially I guess the Mertz portfolio with all therapy toxins, fillers, and so on. You, you know, you do cater for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of educating the patient, because this is something that sometimes is is a very difficult conversation for clinicians to have is, is you know, talking about the long-term benefit of waiting for these treatments to sort of take effect. You know, collagen takes, was it 90, 120 days to kind of remodel itself. So I know a lot of the challenges that clinicians have out there is how do you sort of 
consult a patient for this type of treatment and sort of take them on that journey and get them to appreciate that, you know, in a world where we're, we're sold, as you said, these instant fixes, you know, fillers is almost instantaneous, toxins within a few days to, you know, a week or two. So how, how do you approach that conversation with the patient and in, in, in the education side of things? So in the clinic, my, my first appointments or my assessment appointments will, I mean, they'll be clearly driven by what the patient is looking for. But if they're open to a bigger conversation about, about this whole kind of process, I was going to say journey, but journey is a little bit. But it's true. I mean, there's this, it's a long-term um it's a long-term partnership with some of these people. And I think I think the better they understand what you can offer both short and long term, the better your relationships are with these people. I've I've been seeing some of these people for many years. And it's and it's because there's a degree of trust in the process that people will um, be accepting of my opinion because they've been happy with what we've done before. But I think you just have to explain things. People are eager for knowledge, they're mm-hmm. eager for information. They want to understand both the short and the long-term benefits of these treatments. And so I think my, my initial consultation or, or subsequent consultations will talk long-term. We'll talk about, okay, this is really what the plan is for today and for the next month, but we need to be keeping you looking good for your next birthday and your 40th and your 50th and those, those milestone birthdays. And when I think they, they trust you and when they're willing to go on that longer-term process with you, then I think that conversation about doing these bigger treatments that are not going to deliver instant improvements, they're they're more willing to kind of come on board with it. It's, therapy is probably not the treatment I will rush to talk about in the very first yeah. appointment. It's rare that I would ever do it in the first appointment with somebody, mainly because you don't you don't see instant improvements or, yeah. or mild yeah. improvements um, with the with the immediate um, after treatment, this is a this is investment. This is long term, mm-hmm. and so I think you have to build that connection and that relationship yeah. and that partnership with people. Yeah. So, so I'm assuming you're starting with quick wins. So you know, toxins. It's reliable. It's always going to. Well, I know we've got some issues with uh, resistance popping up here and there, but I mean, for the most part, it, it's reliably consistent. Fillers are instant. So you're saying you're building the trust first. So getting some some quick wins on the board and, and getting them some great results, building the relationship and the rapport. And then it's subsequent consultations, whether it be three months, six months down the track, then you start introducing this type of conversation because the trust is there. They understand you know what you're doing, they're comfortable. And then you're going down that path. Is that, is that kind of the way you, you're thinking about it? Yeah, typically. Certainly if I see somebody new, that would be yep. that would be my approach. If, if I've been seeing somebody um, who's been having regular treatment for a long, long time elsewhere, and then they come to our clinic looking for a different solution then i then i might introduce cell therapy from the beginning you know if they've been having treatments but they're just not quite getting where they want to then then i would i might recommend cell therapy straight up but it's um i think it's important with these treatments where there's not instant improvement not that i think we should be aiming for instant improvements all the time but i think i think when we are i I, sorry i think when we're thinking long term i think you need to get trust. You need to get people to believe in you and to to trust in what you're offering and to be willing to part with their well-earned money to to do these bigger treatments. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, yeah. Toxin for me is sort of a gateway 
treatment where we we build a bit of rapport we we talk about facial aging i get them to understand some tangible things that are going to subtly improve on their face and then if they come back happy and they say hey i like that what else then then you yeah. can introduce more complicated things um we mentioned the word collagen a couple of times now you're the king of collagen yeah. so i'm not going to ask you <laughs> but Stephen, what, what, what do what, why do we lose collagen and and can you truly make it again or 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 are there are different mechanisms at play so collagen is, as I'm sure most people know, it's one of the the most abundant structural proteins that we have in the in our body. So it makes up a good chunk of our extracellular matrix um, and is present in not just skin. I think we have to remember that it's present in multiple tissues. So in tendons and ligaments and bone, I mean, it's, it's throughout our body in various forms. There's lots of different forms of collagen. There's probably over 20 types of variants of collagen. In the skin and the kind of soft tissues of the face, it's mainly collagen type one and type three. And there's this there's this the constant turnover of collagen, like most things in our body, you know, there's a there's a mechanism for replacing old, frayed, degraded collagen and replacing it. But the systems we have in our in our body, they just become, you know, become senescent. Things slow down, everything kind of just eventually the cells that are capable of making collagen, the fibroblasts, become senescent. They, they they stop doing what they want to do or what they're programmed to do. The problem is it's not just that they go quiet. They actually start to increase production of other enzymes and they can actually degrade collagen. So they can have an adverse effect even when they're when they're they've gone quiet. It's not just that they're quietly sitting in the background doing nothing. Actually, they can start to to enhance breakdown of collagen. The collagen that they are producing tends to be recommended. It's not as mechanically robust and as strong. The, the quantity of collagen that the fibroblasts are able to make is, is lessening. So there is this kind of progressive loss of quality of collagen, abundance of collagen. Um, but even the collagen that we are making, the, these um, fibroblasts, these aging fibroblasts are, are actually encouraging the collagen to degrade. So we need to, and that's normal. I mean, that, that's part of the aging process. That's just biologically what happens as we age. But there's things that we can do to kind of reinvigorate those fibroblasts, to waken them up, to activate them, to re-stimulate them, to start producing quality collagen again. And they, and they have, they can, they have the capacity to grow collagen again they just need to walk up yeah i was going to ask just to build on david's question about you know assessment and and maybe who's a candidate and and how you speak to patients i, I often find injectors especially you know maybe more junior injectors it's, it's very hard for them to look at a face and understand what the difference is between say collagen loss and elastin loss or both or superficial wrinkles versus deep wrinkles. So when someone loses collagen, what, what do you see when you, when you look at a patient's face? What are the signs and symptoms? So collagen, on the most part, will give skin kind of mechanical strength. It gives it physical kind of resistance or, or bounce to the skin, whereas, you know, we lose elastin as well. Our elastin changes and becomes thicker and more fibrous and less, less flexible. But elastin, that, that other protein in the skin that is going to give skin more stretch and ability to re recoil. So, and, and usually the, the process, I mean, fibroblasts make elastin as well. Usually that process is running in parallel. I think the thing I notice when I look at skin is when they, when they have skin that when you squeeze, you can see the skin just buckling into 
um, like a concertina just kind of collapses down. I mean, that's primarily elastin as its primary uh, loss. And so when you release it, it doesn't spring back. It kind of just stays in that corrugated uh, pattern. Collagen, well, when you squeeze skin with loss of collagen, it will collapse. But it's kind of got buoyancy. It's still got thickness there. It's elastin that makes it bounce back. But it's, it's the combination of the two. And actually, treatments like our um, biostimulators, collagen stimulators, and all therapy will stimulate both elastin and collagen. So you're getting you're getting the best of both worlds. But the the thing as we mentioned earlier, these things are never happening in isolation. Clearly, we're you know the fat is changing at the same time as we spoke about earlier. These multiple layers of changing. There's changes happening in the foundation, the actual structure of the skin with the of, of the face with the bone. So often, what we're seeing on the top is the reflection of what's going on underneath as well. Yeah. So maybe let's sort of just get to the, the obvious question or for me and I guess maybe laypersons that are listening to this or people that aren't familiar with the technology is what exactly is old therapy in terms of how long has it been around how's the technology changed over the time and then for me how does it kind of differ from the different technologies that are on the market that are promising or reporting to do the same kinds of things in terms of results so old therapy um so therapy so it's, it's kind of Technical name would be uh, microfocus ultrasound with visualization. So that, that's that's its kind of category, mm-hmm. and that really means that it's able to use to use the ultrasound as its basic technology. So the ultrasound with all therapy in particular is able to be utilized in two ways. So we can have therapeutic ultrasound where the ultrasound energy is released from various transducers that we can use and apply to the surface of the skin. And the ultrasound energy is able to can be concentrated to pinpoint um, focuses under the skin surface. But it also uses diagnostic ultrasound. So we can see this happening at the same time. So in your listeners will be very familiar with, with diagnostic ultrasound. You know, if you have a scan of your gallbladder or your baby or something, you know, we can see these images. And so all therapy is able to allow us to, to see images of the skin as well. So as we're treating, we're able to visualize underneath the skin surface. We can identify the dermis and the fat and the the fascial structures and the bone. And we can kind of work out exactly where we're going to deliver the energy because we can see it. So it's so it has this dual benefit. So the ultrasound is used in two ways, therapeutically to deliver heat or to create heat by concentrated ultrasound, but also diagnostically so we can see under the skin surface. Um, it's been around for, so it was launched in Australia in 2014, but it was globally launched back in 2008. I think it was, it's been around for, it's been around for a while. The, um, the technology actually hasn't changed too much in terms of the machine has altered a little bit over the years, but the fundamental technology of being able to focus that energy very precisely has, has been the foundation since it was launched. Yeah. And so how does it kind of differ from other devices on the market, as I said, that, that, that promise the same kind of thing. So wh- wh- when patients that might come into your clinic, for example, and say, you know, um, I've had treatments elsewhere before, I've tr- I don't want to talk about any other devices, but I've had, a, I've had a treatment somewhere else, I paid all this money, I was, you know, told I'd get this kind of result, it hasn't really done what I'd hoped it would do. How do you kind of tackle those, those questions? Because I'm assuming a lot of people listening who have devices or have had treatments have experienced this or, or heard from patients that have experienced this? So how, how do you kind of deal with that kind of question and, and, and what is the answer to that question? How is it different? I, th- I think people would refer to yeah. them as haifu, 
right. so high frequency, highly yeah. highly focused, you know, ultrasound right. or whatever. Yeah. And HIFU, um, I mean, HIFU is a category. I mean, all therapy is a variant of HIFU. I mean, it's, it uses focused ultrasound, as you said. HIFU is a kind of an umbrella term. I think it's like laser. You know, there's lots of devices that fall under laser, and there's lots of devices manufactured that would fall under a HIFU category. The which we can come back to later, but yeah, it's the it's the visualization. It's the the main thing that differentiates all therapy from other high food devices. It's being able to see what you're doing. You you with the other devices, they are firing energy, and we can talk about that. There's there's variations of how they fire energy and how they deliver that energy. But it, the the key thing for me, anyway, for the difference with all therapy is it's been able to see what you're doing because I think that trans to come back to your question, David. I think that translates into results. Because, um, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why people might not get the result that they were expecting. And that's not necessarily just the machine. That could be patient selection or how much they committed to the process of, of making their, their body healthier and, and abstaining from things that we know don't, don't help the healing process. But there is a, there's a component of the treatment. Clearly, you know, clearly, treatment has to work. So it's about... It's about having confidence in the treatment, but it's about looking, looking at the treatment and understanding what what potentially it can do. Understanding understanding the science, which I think is important. We need to understand what these machines have the capacity to do, and then know what they can't do, so that we can apply it to the right person. And I think if you can narrow down all those variables, you can deliver treatments to the right people with the right expectation, and they they get good results. It's it's all about, as you mentioned earlier, it's about patient selection, but it's about being honest about what the machine, what any machine is capable of doing, what it's not able to do. I do lots of laser. I don't claim that every laser I use is going to give somebody flawless skin, yeah. but I can use a certain laser that's going to do more to give flawless skin. So you just have to know what these machines are yeah. capable of and what they were designed for and what they were not designed for. Yeah. So who is the perfect patient? So if you had to sort of design the characteristics of the patient that's going to get the best results what what does that person look like maybe not even look like i mean i guess they want to you want them educated enough to be able to understand what it is that you're talking about and be vested in you know long-term results so what for people listening what's the candidate they should be trying to filter in their clinic to to have a chat about these types of treatments i think the ideal people are fundamentally are people who are not looking for quick fix they are they're invested in long term so i think that's the first thing they're not somebody you're going to really disappoint anybody with a treatment that's going to take three six nine months to see the full benefit if they're expecting it to be better by next week so you have to weed out those people for from the beginning unless you can really educate them about what they're trying to do longer term and they and they are on board with that you want you want people ideally who are who have relatively early signs of the aging process. I think if we can get on top of these processes earlier, we can kind of just nudge them in the right direction again. When you see somebody who is clearly going to be the, a better candidate for a facelift, they should be recommended for a facelift. And if they're not willing to go down that path, then you can have the discussion about all therapy again. But all therapy is not a substitute for a facelift. It's a, it's a treatment for people who want to improve what they have I think tighten, lift, I think those are acceptable words to use with therapy. I think it does tighten and lift. But it's not for people who are at a stage where they need multiple mills of filler to revolumize, 
where they have so much redundant excess skin that nothing is going to get that to the level that they want improvement without surgically excising it. And so you have to, for anybody who presents themselves, we have to just understand what they're, what, and it, I'm sure you've talked about this lots of times in your podcast, but it's setting expectations and setting yeah. goals. In an ideal world, if I would kind of could line up the key people, I think it's people in their late 30s, 40s, who are just starting to get, you know, a little bit heavy on their jawline, who are just starting to see a little bit more heaviness around their nasolabial folds and their marionettes to their brows are maybe just not sitting quite as high as they used to. They're just losing that definition along their jawline. I think I think these are good candidates uh, for treatments. I think people who have never touched their face and then come in in their 60s and 70s, they have multiple factors that are contributing to what we're seeing. I, I think I don't think they're the best candidates. They may they may still decide to go ahead with it and accept the the pros and cons of treatment, but I don't think they're the best candidates. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, we, uh, we've used the words collagen stimulation, lifting, tightening. Now, you know, you go into social media and people get very um, uptight about these words saying they're inappropriate and we're selling a dream and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what do you mean by tightening and lifting? Because, you know, I know if I said that to a patient, they expect a facelift. Like it's, it's just what they expect, right? So what, what do you mean by that? Yes, I think it's um, it's a dangerous area to oversell anything and to suggest that it's going to replicate something surgical. I think you will be on the wrong uh, track with that patient. And I think that's, you know, you're going to regret that in six months, nine months time when they come back for checkups. I think, I think as long as their face is not kind of hanging off their, you know, their skin is not hanging off their face and they're accepting that, I, to me, tightening is making it firmer making it a little bit more shifted in the right direction so you don't see the same shadowing. I think it's not going to reposition, you know, this area to here. It's not going to move skin from one location to another like a face a surgical facelift will. Yeah. But I think it will make their skin tighter in terms of making it more um I think if you can stimulate collagen in those deeper layers of skin, I think we can make the dermis better. I think if we can target that scaffold system that runs through the skin we can kind of um we can kind of condense in the face we can narrow in those scaffold poles you know the the fibrous tissue that's running through from the fascia up to the underside of the dermis and contract that in and i think it firms in that way it kind of pulls things together again i don't it doesn't remove anything and i think but not nothing non-surgical will you know i think we have to be clear with people that they're not going to get this kind of massive shift in the position of their face. It's not capable of doing that. What it is capable of doing is making them look better over a course of months or even years, making them more... I, I agree with you. I think lift is tricky because lift is kind of one of these things that's just like everybody wants to be lifted, but how can you measure how much lift somebody is going to get? Yeah. And... You know, I think, I mean, I've done vector, you know, you can use 3D photography and you can kind of measure repositioning. You do see movement of tissue, but in more than a kind of contraction form, I think it kind of makes the, it kind of pulls things together, like it kind of shrink wraps things a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are your patients the same as mine where they say, I only want that, and they do the two finger facelift where they yank up their <laughs> yeah. face three or four centimeters? 
Yes, and that's that's, um, that's only yeah, what they want. A, they don't want much. They just want this, <laughs> yeah. not nothing too much. Yeah. Um, they still want it natural, obviously. Okay, good to know yeah. that all it's, of our um, patients are saying. I mean, I think, and I think that my take on that would be if they're really not up for surgery and surgery is not something they were willing to consider, I will still think about using all therapy, but I'll combine it with something else. I'm not going to get everything with all therapy for those people that are looking for this degree of, of lift. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of joking, but it's worth laboring that point because I think if you don't establish what that expectation is, then don't proceed or, or proceed with caution yeah. uh, and take good photos and all the rest of it. Yeah. So how, how would the, the treatment slash results differ from, say, like a deep collagen stimulating injectable, say like a, like a sculpture, which has been around for a long time, originally indicated for lipoatrophy, um, is experiencing a, a bit more of a, a renaissance period at the moment, people sort of seeing the, the benefit of it and utilizing it in all sorts of places, including the bum, which is kind of interesting. But how does it differ in terms of the results? Is it sort of achieving a similar outcome in a different way or is there some delineated differences between how these technologies differ from these injectables, collagen stimulating products? I mean, I think primarily our therapy is not going to recreate any new volume. It's not going to give you such an abundance of um, new growth of tissue that you're going to be volumized. So our therapy for me is about non-volumizing, tightening, firming, to an extent, a degree of contraction of the tissue, so you get some illusion or, or, or appearance of lift. I think, for me, collagen stimulators are, are really useful, and I would use them a lot, and I combine them a lot with all right. therapy. They, their place for me is more to improve the quality of the dermis, so we're, we're improving through collagen stimulation and stimulation of the extracellular matrix, better quality skin and arguably better quality um, connections that run through the fat, so these kind of fibrous connections. Our therapy, our therapy is going deeper as well. I mean, our therapy is really targeting that fascia layer, that that this you know in the bulk of the face, this mass. So it's really trying to target that fibrous membrane structure that's running through the layers of the skin, and therefore impacting the connections that run from the smas up to the dermis. Whereas I tend to think of biostimulators really working more in that in slightly more superficial layers, the so subdermal, maybe subcutaneous. But really with all therapy, we're trying to get a little bit deeper because we can see that with our visualization. So that we're really trying to work on the scaffolding that's that's running through the face. But I think these people do very well when you start combining it because unless there's there's very few people who I think only need one all therapy and they're done. You know, they're going to be perfect after a few months most people will benefit from these combination treatments so that you're really tackling multiple causes of their, their aging appearance. And so I think the, the role of collagen stimulators is, is great. They, I'm a big fan. I've been using them for a long time. I don't know if it's off-label and we can cut this out if you want, but how, I'm assuming you use a Mertz biostimulator. So do you have a protocol where you combine that with all therapy? And if so, you know, how do you sort of time your treatments between you know, all therapy and that? So I will, as part of that original assessment, so if they are, if they're a little bit volume depleted, but I can see that they've got that kind of laxity, they've got some, you know, you, you can you can assess that they've got a lack of collagen and elastin, but they're, they need volumized, then I would typically use collagen stimulators first. Mm -hmm. And I would treat them maybe one or two sessions with that to try and fertilize the ground a little bit, try and try and re-stimulate the tissue to be in better 
working condition. We know that some of the biostimulators actually activate the fibroblasts and, and reinvigorate them. So that it's a great thing. We can kind of find them and uh, turn them on again so that they are ready to be um they're ready to be more active at making more quality collagen and elastin. And once they're revolumized, then I would do the L therapy. If they come in and their volume is quite good, it's more of a sagging laxity issue. I might do the L therapy first and then I might combine it with diluted uh, collagen stimulator just so that we really then improve the the quality of the tissue and the appearance of the skin. So really trying to work on improving the appearance of the dermis. So if it's volume, I'll collagen stimulate first and then I'll do all therapy. If their volume is pretty good, I'll do all therapy first to try and get them a bit more lifted and then work at improving their skin quality with with diluted collagen stimulators. Okay. And I guess a similar question to David's, but, you know, different um, modality. A lot of uh, our listeners were asking, well, what's the difference between all therapy and, say, radiofrequency microneedling? Um, you know, lots of devices around, a lot of hype around some of them. But again, I, I guess they're trying to use your term, shrink wrap the face and, and plump the skin. So I know they're different technologies, but what in your experience is probably a better outcome? I mean, I think, say, I mean, fundamentally, I guess they're offering something similar in that it's fractionated. You know, they're they're sparing tissue in between each of the areas where they're heating. All therapy does that by, you know, micro-focusing ultrasound to create these little, they're called thermal coagulation points, these just tiny little injuries of uh, heated tissue with spare tissue round about it. And I guess that's the same principle as RF microneedling, that create some degree of trauma and then there's a heat source at the end of the needle to create to denature the tissue then to trigger collagen production the the, the from my perspective you know, I, I don't have rf microneedling although i see a place for it as um as part of our lineup of treatments the benefits of all therapy is that you're not breaking the skin we don't have to we don't have to penetrate the skin so you don't have to deal with from my experience, you don't have to deal with that aspect of it, of the kind of wound management and the the appearance of the skin afterwards, and um, you know minimizing risk of infection and bruising and bleeding. And you you don't have that with all therapy. We're bypassing the surface of the skin. The the downside is is that we are bypassing the surface of the skin, and so you're not getting treatment going from the from the epidermis down to your target layer. You're having to pick the layers with all therapy where you want to focus in on, but because we've got multiple transducers with all therapy, we can you can pick a different transducer to get to the layer that you want and still bypass the surface. So for people who don't want to factor in too much recovery time or bruising or too much swelling or you know pinprick grid marks all over their face, then then we have the option of using all therapy. Lots of clinics will use RF microneedling is popular just now. I I think it's just an alternative um technology but it's not the same it has it has pros and cons in terms of but for me the main benefit of therapy is i don't have to deal with the breaking the barrier of the mm. skin okay well, so with that in mind what would a, a typical treatment protocol look like so for people wanting to explain this to their patients potentially so things like we've sort of covered patient selection but how many treatments are they going to need is it just one is it multiple um how long in between treatments and then i guess on the day of actual the actual procedure itself what's that like for the patient in terms of you know how painful is it do you need to use any sort of uh, pain relief medication 
downtime, recovery, so on. So just maybe just take us on, on a bit of you know, that patient journey. So it's relatively, it's relatively straightforward. They don't have to do much preparation. I mean, for most people, we would encourage them to be, you know, I would start people on skincare first. I'm, I'm obsessed with skincare, but I, I like it to be, I like their skin as much as possible to be prepared prior to any treatment. But in terms of the of therapy section, they, they don't have to do anything at home. We, we typically get them to come in a little bit early because we factor in some pain relief, um, which we can talk about if you want me to go into detail about that. But I, I, I allow for that. Like most, um, like most kind of treatments that we're doing in, the, in our clinics that take a reasonable amount of time, we have to factor in some degree of pain relief just to make that more comfortable for our patients. The the assessment process, Jake mentioned earlier, I mean, we're rigid with photographs. It's really important that they have baseline, good baseline photography. It has served me very well over the years to go to refer back to where their starting point was. Because of therapy kind of just gets a little bit better over a longer period of time, they don't notice that change day to day like they notice their toxins suddenly kicking in at a week. So we have to have good photography to be able to refer back to. And I'll sometimes also use 3D photography just so we can look at things from different angles. We can measure volumes. We can then, in subsequent sessions, measure um, degrees of shift of tissue or volume repositioning. So baseline photography is important um, and and will will always benefit you in the future when you're when you're doing your reviews or even just when you're looking back over periods of time. I think it's really valuable to be able to see how the process is going. The actual physical treatment, they they lie down as basic stuff. They lie down. You, we tend to draw over their face. We mark out key landmarks that we want to avoid. We want to assess, as Jake was talking about, we want to assess you know, the quality of the tissue, so the degree of uh, skin um, damage in terms of collagen, the last and loss, but also kind of try and get an idea of the degree of laxity of this case, you know, which would be a, an assessment really of deeper tissue and laxity so I mean, you're, I mean I, I slide their face around and feel where I can get more movement and where things are more attached that gives me some assessment of how adherent their fascia is through the through the tissue up to their up to the dermis because that's one of the target layers that we want to really go after with the therapy we want to we want to treat the fascia because that's really where it's these collagen rich tissues we want to treat fascia and the deep dermis so you make an assessment of those two structures and from that, start to work out where you want to focus most of your treatment and where what areas are going to be uh, only requiring some lighter treatment. And then I use the ultrasound. I mentioned at the beginning that the machine has the therapeutic and diagnostic ultrasound. So I use the diagnostic ultrasound. I look at their skin. I look at the thickness of their dermis. I see how thick their fat is. I see if I can get good contact between the transducer and the skin. I want to look at areas where the bone is more visible, where there might not be as much soft tissue coverage. And so by looking at all of that, I can work out what transducers I need to use, how much pressure I need to apply in certain areas to be able to deliver that energy and be able to hit the structure that I'm trying to hit. Because there is no point firing that energy, wasting that energy, firing it into something that doesn't have the capacity to grow collagen. It's futile and potentially damaging. So there's a, it's a good assessment phase as part of your treatment. You, you use the therapy device to plan your treatment. And once you've done that, that doesn't take that long. Once you get skilled to doing it and kind of zip around and look at the key structures and plan out, map out what you're doing. 
and then you deliver the treatment. And I work in grids, and I, um, it's a handpiece you apply it to the skin. You just move it um, in sequence up to the skin. So then we we actually hold the transducer just onto the skin surface, and then when we are confident that our placement is is as good as possible, then when the machine is activated, it fires a, a row of pulses of microfocused ultrasound, and that's so the ultrasound is concentrated at these dots, focus points, and that concentrated ultrasound is really what creates heat. You want the heat up to a certain um, temperature so that the it denatures and it creates, and that's what stimulates your collagen production from that point on. The so we just work our way around the face, different sections, different panels. Um, the machine is able to kind of record what we're doing, so we can keep a record of it that way, and it keeps a record of your number of pulses and the energy settings and the serial numbers and all these things, so that you have medical records built into the machine as well, which is really useful to refer back to, and then. So once we've completed the whole treatment, and the, typically I, I try and do full face treatment, so that would involve under the jawline, the lower face, around the eye, the brow. Um, but we can treat multiple areas. We can treat necks, decolletage. Those would be the kind of standard areas to treat. There's um, In my practice, we would treat uh, on body as well, but that's uh, not something that's just typical, and that's, that's off-label. Okay. Um, but there's, there's lots of applications for it. And then in terms of patients afterwards, they can walk out the door. They, there's nothing they need to do afterwards in terms of skincare or wound care or aftercare. They can, as long as they feel good, they can return to their normal day-to-day life, and it doesn't, it doesn't stop them doing things. And that that maybe contrasts to some of the other tightening treatments where where it might have some more degree of downtime. I'm not saying all therapy never has downtime, but for the vast majority of people, it's very very manageable. They don't. It doesn't impact their day-to-day function. Right. Uh, you did mention that you have to prep them with some sort of analgesia. So what what are you doing? I have heard anecdotally it's a little bit bitey, but maybe the technology has yeah. evolved since the older versions. I don't know. Yeah. Are we talking Panadol or Pethidine? Like, <laughs> how far are I we mean, going? It's propofol. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, I think it's misleading to say it's not painful. It doesn't have some discomfort. I think we have to be realistic with patients. But lots of treatments have a degree of discomfort. Now, I don't do Erbium laser resurfacing and don't prepare them and give them numbing cream and analgesia. You know, treatments have a degree of discomfort. We just have to plan for it. Patients need to know what to expect and how that's going to look like on the day. So we have a protocol in the clinic that we follow. Some people, if they're just doing very small areas, like they're just doing their upper face or their brow, they would need nothing. They would be, they would be, those treatments are quick. They're kind of 15, 20 minutes. At a push, they might need some nitrous oxide, I tend to use nitrous oxide and, and oxygen for people, um, and that would be more than sufficient. If they are doing a full face, then that's going to involve the upper face and the lower face, and they're going down their neck, if we're including the neck. For most of those people, I will get them to come in a little early. We follow our protocol, which is, uh, it ranges from paracetamol and ibuprofen. Sometimes I'll add codeine. Um, occasionally, I'll add a short-acting oral uh, benzodiazepine just to if necessary but that it varies person to person but i make sure that my i make sure that they're adequately comfortable because yeah, yeah. i don't want anybody being uncomfortable in yeah. the clinic if i've got as a doctor if i've got the ability to prescribe and do things for people i don't want anybody leaving the clinic thinking okay that was not pleasant whether that's all therapy or 
having their lips filled or laser resurfacing, whatever it is, I want these experiences mm. to be as positive as I can. So you'd never do sort of local in an area? It's all sort of, or is that, is that sort of maybe yeah, so it, it, it complicate the treatment because of the, the liquid in that yeah, area? So I yeah. don't do local anesthetic. I will sometimes apply topical local anesthetic oh. um, and I'll use like laser resurfacing anesthetic, which, you know, I leave it on for 45 minutes. And that's, that helps when we're doing the very superficial patterns with the therapy, which is down mm. at the 1.5 millimeter. It does help with that. When we're the three depths that our therapy works at the 1.53 millimeters and 4.5 millimeters, I think the numbing cream doesn't adequately numb those deeper layers. And um, some people have in the past injected local anesthetic or done nerve block. I I actually also want to know if they're really finding it sore. I mean, if they're really struggling. That to me is a warning that we're we're going something is not right with the mm. with how the treatment's progressing. I mean, if they are jumping off the beds, I think that needs to be known. So I don't do nerve blocks or or infiltrate local anaesthetic. I think because we're applying heat and because there's that from that heat, there's a potential for for thermal injuries. I kind of want to know if it's getting to a point where it's unmanageable. So I I don't do nerve blocks. Right. I have to agree with that. I, I don't like doing nerve blocks for lips or, or, or anything, really. Maybe hands for hyperhidrosis, but everything else, like you, you kind of want some feedback and, and also the patient to, to have a normal repose rather than sort of twisting their face because they can't feel their face. So, <laughs> yeah. It's true. I mean, the, it's really important that we look after the pain aspect of any treatment. It's, um, you know, people from a business perspective, you know, they have to leave the clinic and think, okay, that was a positive experience. It wasn't horrendous that I'm never going back and never doing that again. Because these, you know, a badly managed, badly managed pain during any treatment is a deterrent to them coming back. And I think, aside from a from the therapeutic endpoint, from a business perspective, I don't want people leaving thinking that was awful. Yeah. I'm not doing that again. That yeah. doesn't help my clinic. Yeah, not a good way to get referrals. <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, not really. Um, yeah, go on. I was going to say, um, you've mentioned the ultrasound component, and of course, there, there's um, you know aesthetic ultrasound for diagnosis and treatment, and then there's you know old therapy for microfocused ultrasound under vision. So, are they the same skill set, or, or is old therapy pretty easy to pick up? Because I know a lot of injectors have sort of thought about you know bringing an ultrasound for safety, and yet when they've had a look or even done some online modules, they've been put off by what they're seeing on screen and getting a bit complicated, you know, it looks a bit complicated sometimes. So what, what's the learning curve, I guess, is my question. It's, um, so the actual, the, the actual fundamental learning. So when you, when you get cell therapy or when I got cell therapy and you start using it, I mean, this was years ago, I've had it for a long time. It's, um, it does take a bit of time to get your head around what you're looking at, but I think cell therapy because I have, a, like you, I, I do a little bit of ultrasound. I'm not amazing at it, but I do a little bit of ultrasound in my clinic just because I've been used to ultrasound or therapy for a long time. But there is a quite a steep learning curve with it, just orientating yourself to what you're looking at. And, you know, when you change the position of the transducer, you know, how things are looking differently. And and it kind of all looks a bit the same. I mean, the therapy ultrasound is good because it's good because it's not, the, the resolution is not as high as some of these portable uh, ones. And that's a good thing because you're just looking at basic structures. You're mm. looking at dermis, you can see fat, you can see fascia, you can see bone. And so I think from a learning experience, it's actually, I think, a little bit easier because you can just, it's pattern recognition. You can see these images and you just start to work out what you're looking at, I think, easier than when you're doing 
lots of movement and changing angles and doing dopplers and and doing all these fancy things with handheld diagnostic ultrasound. So the the learning process is, you know, it's it's a new skill, but I think it's easily acquired. I think you start to kind of really work out what you're looking at, and you just, from a therapy's perspective, you need to just know what those key structures are that you're targeting with your with your energy. Yeah. The actual delivery of the energy is relatively straightforward. Once you've matched up what you want to, where you want to deliver that energy, and you're confident that your contact between your transducer and your tissue is as, as good as possible, so that every time you fire the transducer, that you're going to get effective results. And I think, I think you know, in the past, that's probably where things have gone wrong, not just with all therapy, but with other high speed devices. They're kind of just firing it everywhere and hoping that it's hitting the right spot. And I think. For me, that's the big difference. When I can see what I'm doing, I know then that I'm delivering it to the right place, and therefore I'm going to translate that into clinical therapeutic results. If you're firing energy all over the place, never quite sure where it's going, it's potluck whether you're hitting the right structure that's going to grow collagen. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, just to sort of uh, make it, I guess, more explicit, you said there's three heads, 1.5 millimeters, three, and I think four and a half. So you just change these heads on, on the ultrasound so they fire at different depths. And is it as intuitive as, say, you know, you're doing, I don't know, the brow where it's quite thin, you choose the 1.5 versus, you know, let's say a thicker piece of tissue where you're trying to treat the SMAS, you're highly likely to go for the 4.5 and then you and then you look to see if the tissue is there to sort of target. Um, yes, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there are obviously protocols and guidelines would give suggested um, treatment patterns for different areas of the face. But interestingly, there was a, I, I don't know whether you read it, there was a, a study a few years ago uh, related to therapy, but it was Gabriela Casabona and Sebastian Cotifana looking at the variations between mass depth, dermal thickness across different age groups, uh, different sex, um, and and really really highlighting the fact that our faces are quite different, that mm. your face is different to mine, is different to my 80-year-old neighbour. You know, our faces are, and we cannot treat everybody's face the same. And I think, I think as a differentiator between high funeral therapy, the therapy has that ability to to make those personalized, customized adjustments to the face that you're treating, not assuming that everybody's smiles is 4.5 and their dermis is three millimeters, because we know it's not. So it's, I mean, there's, there's good study evidence that show that we're not the same. And so if you treat everyone the same, as I said earlier, you will end up hitting the wrong structure. Mm. And it, at best, you will get no results. And at worst, you'll get a complication because you've hit... Uh, the wrong structure that you're not intending to target. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are, sorry, to tackle back to your question, there are kind of broad guidelines about what we would recommend in different areas of the face, but it's, we really would encourage people to use, to, to use the visualization to personalize it to the face that they're treating, not just assume we're all the same because we know that that's not the case. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So you, you use the word complications. So what kind of complications are we talking about? Like what's possible? Um, what's maybe like in a less less uh, commonly seen complication versus something that, you know, potentially could happen? So you sort of alluded to the fact that if you hit, you know, the wrong structure, what, what could we potentially be looking at? So most, um, so my experience would be most, most side effects are minimal. They will get some 
I think acceptable to most patients. They'll get some flushing, they'll be red afterwards. Um, sometimes when we use the more superficial transfusion, the 1.5, they will get some degree of superficial swelling. So sometimes they'll see kind of um, uh, wheels and they will disappear usually usually relatively quickly. By the time we finish the treatment, sometimes it disappears. Suddenly by the next day, they, they're generally gone. And that's just for, from some superficial swelling in the in the upper der- in the dermis. More, you know, they can be a little bit tender. I, when I've had a therapy before, I mean, your face does feel a little tender afterwards. It's had hundreds of tiny little dots of 65, 70 degrees heat fired under it. It's, it's a little tender, but not enough to stop you doing something the next day. Some people will swell. Again, most people can be uh, planned for that and and won't be too upset by that. You know, we can we can kind of anticipate based on previous treatments that they've had who might be a sweller. Bruising is rare. Um, pain afterwards is not really a big problem. There are a couple of nerves I mentioned earlier when we're plotting out our treatments and we're kind of working out mapping out where we're going to treat. We we try and avoid areas where we know. At the marginal mandibular nerve, we'd be sitting, we'd be careful around the kind of supratrochlear nerve. Um, even if you do inadvertently hit those nerves, it's unlikely you're going to cause any anything at all. You might just feel a little bit of a ping from the nerve, and then you know to avoid that area, and you just remap it and remark it. If you keep hitting that nerve, maybe over and over again, um, certainly there have been a few cases of, of short-term neuropraxy, just where they feel the nerves a bit... Uh, uncomfortable or it's usually sensory symptoms and they have always resolved after a few weeks. So there's never been any cases at all therapy reported that we know of of um, of any nerve damage to the skin. Um, again, you have to be careful with, I mentioned, I mean, it's, it's hot, it's 65, 70 degrees. So that contact between the transducer and the skin has to be good. We can't have them jumping and pulling away from you and losing contact between your, uh, your transducer and the skin. So that's the reason I sometimes use a light benzodiazepine. If they're fidgety and and nervy, sometimes we'll use just something a little bit light just to help them relax so that I can keep better contact between their skin and the transducer and therefore make it a safer treatment. It's not about mm. sedating them. It's making the it's making it safer for them. Mm. Yeah. Um HA fillers. Is there any sort you sort of mentioned 65, 70 degrees? Um is there any sort of issues with that sort of heat affecting the HA integrity or, you know, Jake shaking his head saying no. <laughs> no I'm going to let the expert answer <laughs> As a lay person, it's yeah, an obvious question so. to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always been one of these things that people have asked, you know, can yeah. you melt the melt HA filler? Um, I don't think so. I don't think um, – I mean, I can sometimes you can see filler on the ultrasound, the diagnostic ultrasound, you know, particularly if you're treating around the eye and they have a collection of filler, you know, you can see yeah. it on the ultrasound. So the majority of the time I can avoid it. So unless you're deliberately trying to disrupt the filler in some way, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it melts the filler. Um, I wouldn't, if I had the choice of sequence of treatment, do all therapy first and then their filler afterwards, rather than do their filler first and then a week later do their all therapy. And partly because the tissue planes have been adjusted a little bit by the injection of filler, um, partly they may still be a little bit swollen, so you're maybe not getting a good reflection of, of what they look like. So I think if you had the opportunity to do all therapy first and then filler subsequent, but I, I've certainly not been convinced that it can melt mm. filler at that temperature. Yeah. And it's microseconds. I mean, the, the amounts of time that the energy is creating that heat yeah. is super, super short. So 
I think you really have to expose filler to higher temperatures for longer and really bulk heat filler at high, high temperatures mm. to have any impact on the structural integrity right. of HA. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar question for laser, you know, yeah. if, if you're lasering at, say, 70 degrees, yeah. is that going to melt the filler? And I spoke to um, Professor Goodman and 100 other people, and they're, they're, they're not convinced and, yeah. and that, that there's any effect. I mean, I think you're right. Just because you can't melt a filler doesn't mean you can't sort of change the architecture around the filler and maybe create some puffiness or change. Mm. But, but actually removing filler, yeah. I don't think is a, a real thing. Okay. But that does lead on to, I guess, a controversy of, of all of these technologies, oh, which is melting tissue. fat. Ah, yes. Now, sometimes you might want to do that deliberately, say in the submental area or, I don't know, somewhere else. But, um, you know, one of the things that was floating around for many, many years and um, I guess sort of argued about hotly on, on Instagram particularly was, you know, some patients would say, well, I had not necessarily all therapy, but one of these technologies, and they felt they looked saggier and hollower after the treatment or after the protocol. So what, what, what's your take on that, Stephen? So similar to, similar to filler, I don't think, so my, my view would be, I don't think fat can be uh, destroyed by the amount of energy that we place into the skin with all therapy for the long, and for the duration of time that we exposed tissue to, to the heat energy. The other thing I think is important is be, we actually don't want to treat fat. Well, certainly something I don't. That's not the, that's not the objective of all therapy. Um, you know, and we're using that visualization to avoid fat. You know, I'm trying to target deep dermis and fascia because they're the structures that have the most abundant potential to be able to grow new collagen. And so actually it's really not desirable for me to to waste that energy going into fat tissue because it's not going to trigger the response that I'm looking for. So I guess that's the first thing is that it's it's not our intended tissue. If you inadvertently fire um, ultrasound into fat, I don't think there's been any convincing publications that it would cause significant damage to the or and the volume that you would have to treat and the amount of energy you'd have to put in and the time you'd have to expose that fat tissue to heat would be far, 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 far greater than what we're ever achieving with, with ultrasound. But the other thing that I think is important to differentiate is that, and it goes back to actually what I said a second ago, we know where we're treating with all therapy because I can see it and I can avoid things I want to avoid and treat things that I want to treat. And I also know with all therapy, just because of the way it's been engineered and there's a, actually there's a really great paper was published maybe earlier this year or last year um, looking at the kind of engineering of, of HIFU and all therapy, they looked at four devices. There was three HIFU devices and uh, MFUV, which is all therapy. And they looked at the kind of characteristics of the different machines and from an engineering perspective, you know, how much energy they were putting out, um, how reliable they were at, at modifying the, um, the temperature regulation, how, what the spacing was between each of these thermal coagulation points, these heat spots, and they looked at the shape of the these thermal coagulation points as well. And interestingly, with all therapy, they're almost, almost, they're not quite, they're almost perfectly spherical. Mm. And they are almost perfectly distributed. So when you do biopsy samples, like you can see these thermal coagulation points beautifully lined up. I mean, it's like, it's like architecture. I mean, it's beautifully constructed. And there's spacing in between, almost identical spacing in between each of the points which then allows for this kind of fractionated technology to then allow kind of surrounding tissue to be 
uh, able to facilitate the repair of adjacent tissue. And that's not the same with all HIFUs. HIFUs vary considerably in what they what they deliver. Some of those um, some of those thermal coagulation points, unlike all therapy, where they're kind of almost perfectly spherical, are more like starbursts. Mm. So they're kind of much more superficial than what they're reported to be delivering at. The you know there might be an elongated um, distribution of the thermal energy, meaning that it's treating deeper than you think, but also more superficial than you think. So I think there's a I think there's a big variation in how the machines deliver energy, and that might uh, contribute to damaging fat. Because if, if you think you're delivering it into the fascia, but actually your high food device is delivering it into the more superficial tissue, maybe you are targeting fat, not knowing that you are. And I, for me, I mean, I, I, don't see, I don't see why you wouldn't want people to see what you're doing. Mm. We don't close our eyes when we're injecting and hope for the best that we're going to hit the right, achieve the right result. But what, I mean, why would you want to this is my opinion, but why would you not want to see what you're doing with all, with when you're delivering this energy? So I can see it, and I can avoid things, and I can treat things, and and for me that makes it safer. And that would be that paper's great. It, it really shows the the variation between the different technologies, and and I think that's important. We have to go back to science, and we have to go back to um, you know we get caught up and we're very seduced by marketing and by trends and what people think are popular and buzzwords and keywords but you know i think if you're deviated too much from science to the doctor i think i think you should be thinking how you're practicing yeah it's a good point in fact uh, you supplied us with a number of papers and, and thank you to Mertz for that when we were researching this episode so we'll make those available for all of our patreon subscribers yeah. so you know you guys can dip in and read all the science and yeah. uh, Stephen, i think you wrote one of the papers with neve cordoff one of our previous guests as well tell us about that one briefly because i think it's your protocol for how you go about you know actually using the device yeah so uh, yeah neve asked me if i would help just uh, we split the centers between her clinic and, and mine. We were looking at if we could modify the protocol from the standard pre-established protocol and reduce it into smaller, maybe more manageable treatment sessions. Because we know that the things, as you've mentioned, the things that, that concern the people potentially about therapy is this concern about pain, even though I think we can manage that and address that well. But we, we were thinking, okay, well, what happens if we divide the treatments up rather than do one bigger treatment that might just be getting a little bit too uncomfortable by the end. What happens if we do that over two, three, four treatments and just just make them short and sharp and then pick up where we left off the next time we see them? Do Can we achieve the same result? And we could. The outcome from the, the study, which was um, published just a couple months ago, was that it was non-inferior to the traditional standard, do it in one go and you're done, um, but our pain scores were less, and we were able to get the energies a little bit higher. And it was more, it was very acceptable to patients to do that over a few sessions because they could spread the cost, they could divide it up over a couple of sessions or two or three sessions, which may be more appealing to them. But also they could fit it in with their their work schedule or their lifestyle a little easier as well. So we looked at a few things. We looked at um, patient satisfaction, we looked at pain scores. We looked at uh, Vectra 3D imagery. We looked at Vizia to see if there are any skin quality changes with our therapy, which there were. We actually got quite a lot of data about um, some skin quality improvements as well as this kind of volumetric lift. But interestingly, and quite good to support the original data, is that we our results were consistent with the very early publications that got the original FDA approval, 
we got the same degree of brow lifting as the original studies and the same degree of submental improvement. So we were able to reinforce the, the basic science that supported its, um, its FDA and TGA uh, launches. Fantastic. It was good. We contributed to the... Um, yeah, that fundamental evidence that supports issues. That's mm. great. Now, on to a couple of, I guess, business and logistical questions, yeah. which is always David's <laughs> fun bit at the end. I'm curious to know how big is the device? Like, if you're you know, if you thinking of buying a device and you've got, you know, maybe um, reduced space in your clinic, where, where does it live? How, how cumbersome is it? And, you know, uh, how often are you having to service it? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. It's um, it's not that big. It's the actual unit itself is like uh, like an old fashioned big laptop. It's about sixty centimeters. Maybe it has a flip up screen. Uh, it's got a touch screen that you can uh, record your notes on, and it has a the ultrasound built into that screen as well. It comes with a transducer handpiece, or the handpiece, sorry, and you slot, as you mentioned, these different transducers um, into it. It comes on a on a trolley that's on wheels. So, so it's, it's about, yeah, but 60 odd centimeters, maybe by 60, it's that kind of size. It's not, okay. it's not any bigger than a small, very small laser. Um, it is, it's portable. I can wheel it between different rooms in the clinic. I tend not to leave it in one room, but you can move it around. It, it comes out in a big carry case. You can take it. So if it's somebody who is working in different clinics, they're not based on one, they, they could pack it up and take it with them. It comes in a travel case. It's um, it's never well, mine, mine's never been serviced. I've had it since um, two thousand and sixteen or fifteen. Um, I've had a couple of times where I've needed to uh, get the handpiece serviced. Um, so it's been very reliable. That's that's my experience with my one. Anyway, I've not had any any major problems with it. At all. I'm not just saying that. I don't. I've generally not. It's probably been one of the most consistent machines I've had in the clinic. Lasers, I've got lots of lasers, but you know, lasers need to be serviced. The, the flash lamps go, something goes with it occasionally. Um, I've actually had very, very few treatments where I've had to abandon the treatment with therapy. I think it's maybe happened once, and that's because I to do with the handpiece. But it's it's been pretty reliable. It's been one of my better better purchases over the years. It's um. Uh, you know the question. I'm sorry, I've forgotten your. Oh, we're question. gonna. Well, it's, uh, maybe we'll talk about some money, and I promise not to make any Scottish yeah. jokes about money. All right, so <laughs> it's free. It's, the cheaper, the better. Yeah, yeah. My, my cousin but, said he's got short arms and deep pockets, so I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, where does this sort of stack up in terms of you know, if you were to spend in you know an an hour treating a patient for fillers and toxin versus doing, and I know we're not sort of trying to. We're not doing treatments for patients based on how much you're going to make, but I mean to give people a comparison of the of the value of their time. What does it kind of look like in terms of what do you charge the patient? Um, I know we're probably going to get into a little bit, little bit around how you can you know target different zones of the face. You don't have to treat the whole face, so it can sort of become a lot more affordable. But in terms of like I guess return on your time, how does it compare to other treatments, and, and what's it costing patients? Yeah, so I mean, I, I our treatment times are generally between. If we're doing a face or a full face, like an, an hour, an hour and a half, they might be in the clinic. So it's a reasonable amount of time they're in the clinic. Um, it can be done. You can delegate it. So I mean, if you choose to train up, um, I have a nurse and a dermal therapist that I've trained over the years to also do the treatment. I don't do them all myself. I, I still do a good chunk of them myself, but I have trained um, some of the other staff in the clinic well so that they're very competent to also deliver them. 
And from a business perspective, that would be helpful because there's, um, you know, you perhaps have less overheads with some of your additional stuff. They, they're consumable for all therapy, aside from your repayment of the machine. Uh, if you purchase the machine, is the transducer. You have to buy new transducers. So the transducers have a number of available pulses or lines on them. And then once they have been used up, then you have to replace the transducer. So that's your ongoing cost. They, there's no other cost in terms of running the machine, but you need to have a supply of transducers because once once it's empty, it's empty. You can't use the you can't deliver energy at that line. So that's your ongoing cost that you have to factor into your profitability from your treatment. But you can charge a reasonable amount of money for these treatments. I think they are they're they're offering something different to your tops and your filler. You're really trying to you're really trying to provide something that's going to be a longer lasting treatment. It's really trying to work at that kind of whole scaffolding of the face. I think it has a I think it has a different selling angle to your toxin filler. Mm. Um, but the way I do it is that, you know, I have treatments that in my clinic that are more profitable and I have treatments that are less profitable. But if, when I mix them all in together, then it, it all works out in the end for me. And I know that then I've really targeted all of those layers of the aging face and then I get better results. I get better results, I get more patients. And so then, so I... I mean, I'm aware of what the profitability is for all of our treatments in the clinic, but it, it actually it doesn't come into my decision-making when I'm thinking, what's the best thing here? Because I know another treatment that we offer is going to kind of balance everything up. But they are, for me, even if I do them versus the nurse or the therapist does them, they remain decent, profitable treatments. I got a question, because I'm one of those injectors who injects. I don't have any devices. I mean, of course, I work in a clinic where I can you know, internally refer for laser and even surgery. But I guess I've always been a little bit reticent to learn devices because, I mean, like you said, you can delegate to, to other staff and, you know, my, my sort of business brain says, well, just stay in the lane and, and just do injecting because that's what you're good at. But I, I guess my question is what, what drew you to wanting to, to master a device when you can delegate it like you know do you get enjoyment from it or is it just seeing the results that's the most satisfying thing what what is it that you know made you passionate about it i mean i, I do enjoy doing it i mean lots of lots of people have said in the past oh, it's, it's so boring you know you're just kind of doing one line after the other it's so repetitive but and, and maybe that maybe that is the case for some of the other devices the the ultrasound aspect of it i think makes it interesting because it's it's real. It's like real time. It's, to, it's when I'm moving out and I'm seeing it happening at the same time, and it becomes it becomes a kind of an addictive challenge to yourself to make every shot the best you can. Like you're on a mission <laughs> to kind of optimize everything you're doing, and you become really internally competitive yeah. at getting better results than somebody else. I don't know. This is me, and this is probably a, a you know it's not a desirable thing, but it's you want to make it. You want to make every shot you do count. And so I challenge myself to make it as good as I can every single time. So I actually don't get, I don't find it monotonous because it keeps me interested. Like I'm, I'm watching all the time and I'm maneuvering it and I'm kind of challenging myself to get this best result. It's, it keeps me occupied. I just, I trained other people in the clinic because I do enough of them that it takes up too much time for me just mm. to do it. It's, you know, if it's 90 minutes, that's a good chunk of time where I could see a number of toxins or um, fillers during that time. So 
it was more just a logistics of being able to spread the the load amongst the the clinic staff. So what are patients sort of roughly looking at per treatment? So maybe let's look at per zone and then for a full face. Yep. So if we're treating uh, upper face, or if you're treating the kind of brow area around the eye, that might be. I mean, it might. I think it should vary depending on the experience of the person doing it, but around about $1,000, maybe for Australian dollars for the upper face, and that's to treat around the eye. For doing the kind of lower face, I try and do the whole face if I can. So I do from under the jawline mm-hmm. and up and around their eye because I think you get better results if mm-hmm. you can globally treat the face. Uh, that would vary somewhere between around three, three and a half thousand dollars um, And then if you're treating kind of necks, you're going down to the decolletage. I mean, if you're treating everywhere in one go, you could be the best parts of four and a half, four eight, yeah. five thousand, something like that. Okay. It's it's um, it's reasonable investments. I think I think, and that's it. Goes back to very one of the very early points that you have to pick the right people because if they're spending this amount of money, you need to give them a result. It's not acceptable to pick the wrong people take their money mm. and then they'll be disappointed in six months. It's the worst feeling when you see somebody and they've invested this time and effort in six months of time and you've not delivered something for them. So I think you know, you, be, you get better doing that with more experience. I think that applies to, um, to toxins and to fillers as well. You get better at saying no to the wrong people and yes to the right people that you can help and give them great yeah. results. Okay. And what are the cost of your transducers? So the transducer carries 2,400 shots or, yep. or pulses. Um, so I have one for each of the three depths, the one and a half, the mm-hmm. three, the four and a half. I also have a, a narrower transducer for uh, the one and a half and the three, which has got a narrower window, which lets me mm-hmm. kind of get into smaller areas or around the mouth. Uh, they are around that. I mean, that's probably something to, to contact Marks about, but they're they're around about two and a half thousand dollars ish to replace the uh, the transducer. Yeah. And you'll get two thousand four hundred shots out of that. My average treatments for the full face are around eight hundred ish shots would be a kind of average kind of treatment. So you can kind of work out the maths of that that you're using about uh, the equivalent. You're you're switching between different transducers, but yeah. you're using Roughly the equivalent of about a third of a transducer, which the whole transducer is costing you two and a half. You're charging maybe three for that treatment. Yeah, so yeah. a third of the transducer, it's, it's profitable for yeah. clinics. Okay, so that seems pretty that reasonable will vary to me. Between, um, depending obviously what you're charging and, and your overheads, but it's uh, and whether you're repaying the machine or whether you've repaid yeah. it already. Okay. Um, I know that Mertz have opened a new training centre called the Friedrich Mertz Training Centre. Is that correct? Yeah, Friedrich Mertz. He was the founder of the Mertz Pharmaceutical Company back in, I can't remember, many years ago. Right. Um, 120 odd years ago, I think he founded it in Frankfurt in Germany. So he was the founding pharmacist, chemist that that set up Mertz um, Pharmaceutical Company many years ago. And it's still his family. It's still it's a family-owned company. They're still owned by the Marx family. Right. So, where's their new training centre, and what's there? I think they they opened recently, and I gather you were there. So, what 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 happens there? Yeah. So they they've built a great space in Mascot, so really close to the airport. So mm. great for people coming in for trainings if they're flying into state for trainings. They so they have their head offices there. They've also built uh, a training centre, which is. It's great. They've, they've, they've 
uh, got individual bays for um, supervised training if, if there's trainings happening in the clinic in the in that environment for both their toxin for Zeman, for Belotero, for Radies, for all therapy, uh, and they're now offering trainings across all of their portfolio. There's also a, a kind of didactic presentation space that's adjoining. Uh, it's great. They've got lockers and changing rooms. Like they've made it really practical for people to be able to attend and get as much out of the trainings as possible. And they have a fridge stocked with drinks, which is very nice. Oh, there just, you go. You just sold um, everyone. <laughs> well looked after. Yeah. So, no, it's a great space and it's brand new and it's it's all very kind of high tech kind of IT stuff. So it's great. Yeah. So they've and they've installed um uh, clinical imaging photography as well. So they can really utilize the training space to to photograph people and really kind of dive deep into the photographs and actually understand the anatomy. It's, it's good. They've, they've done it very nicely and it's um, it's going to be a great training space for us to Fantastic. Well, the reason I mentioned it is because, of course, if you're an existing customer of Mertz, you can just call your rep and I'm sure they'll arrange training. But if you're not um, currently a Mertz uh, customer, but you're interested yep. in maybe learning more about all therapy or even training, um, you know, if you just go to mertzaustralia.com.au, you can find all of the links and they will hook you up. But yeah, it's great to know that you've got a facility. I live in Mascot. I'll have there to you go. swing by and, and have a look. It looks, sounds yeah. amazing. You're very welcome to. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think that's everything we had to ask. We, yeah, we asked we... a few curveballs. We asked about the downtime, uh, pain. I think it was good to be honest about, you know, um, you know, all patients are different. They, they perce- perceive things differently and some sit there as if think nothing had happened and yeah. some is sight of a needle that, and they're needing a benzo. So yeah. no, it, was, it was great. I still don't believe you're 44, but anyway, that's for another, <laughs> another discussion. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Are you going to be going to Monaco, MCAS, any of the sort of global events next year? Yeah, I'm off to uh, I'm off to Barcelona next week. Merck's have their kind of global events um, in Europe uh, at the end of the year, so it's next week. So I'm off to that. I I haven't really committed to to much next year. I've, I'm certainly doing some kind of presenting locally and uh, regionally in kind of Asia for Merck to do some some KOL work for them for that. I yeah, I haven't really looked at any of the big conferences. What are you planning to? Have you got plans for any already? I'm definitely going to Monaco, so that should be fun. Um, and I'm trying to tack on some teaching in London and maybe in Norway as sort of part of that trip just to make it a bit more efficient with the flights. But um, yeah, I was going to say it would be great to see you and and yeah, share absolutely. a beer and, and catch up and have a chat about how your old therapy journey is going. But um, really appreciate your time. It's fascinating. I've, I've not actually seen the device you know, being used. So I don't know if you've got any videos. Maybe we could also get a video from either yourself or Mertz and again, show our patrons exactly, you know, you know, all the things that you've described, but actually sort of in a video and maybe to see how it actually, how it works. Yeah, I'm happy to be a guinea pig. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, David's angling for free treatments again. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know where the training center is now. There you, you can go. be Just one say, of the models. Yeah, exactly. Why not? All all right. Right. Well, Th- thank you very well, much for having me. Yeah, I thank appreciate, you. Um, Love to spend time with you. So thank you. Yeah, for your time. thank you, and thanks for Mertz for partnering with us. It's a great opportunity, and thanks for your support. And um, hopefully, we'll get you guys back on again. Brilliant. All right. Well, Stephen, we'll, we won't take up any more of your time, but thank you again, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. Thank take you. care. 
For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information. 